0: to drink from your cup, to be in pursuit of your ways. God, we are so easily tripped up by the weight and the sin that besets us, as the Scripture says, Lord. Help us, Lord, to run the race with patience, the race that you've set before us. God, we come to you humbly asking these things, Lord, but also eagerly anticipating the work that you'll do in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Just thinking about the uh, the backdrop that we put our song lyrics up is just a black screen with, with white letters, very simple, but so easy for our eye to see typically, isn't it? We love to see contrast. We love it when things kind of pop out or jump out. We've been looking at the changing foliage over the last couple of weeks and, and that contrast just kind of screams at us as we're going up and down the road. We have a desire to see things in stark contrast so much that, that even, you know, I hate to bring up politics. You probably were like, man, finally I can get to the church and escape all the noise of the political season. And here I am resurrecting it on you here, but it's going to be very brief. But you'll notice as, as, the, uh, as the candidates that are put before us every single season... Uh, the ultimate goal, it seems, of the campaigns is to create as much distance or contrast to the opposition so that your choice is much clearer. And uh, we, we get frustrated if it seems like it's all the same and the people are the saying there's no difference in everything. We, we're, we're hungry. We're begging for something that's different, someone that looks different, either from the, the opposition um, or the party they represent or the overall you know, theme of the culture or just what we're sensing and seeing and feeling. And so the more successful campaigns are the ones that can present their candidate with that kind of contrast. Our eyes go towards that, and we go, hmm, interesting. It gets our attention. Well, Jesus is not running for office. He is the office. He's not running a campaign. He's his own promoter and everything, but he knows how we were wired. He knows how we were made. He created us. And he knows that we long to see contrast, that we need things presented to us in stark contrast in order for us to clearly make up our minds to know where we're going. Um, As you see, all that Jesus did in the scriptures... He uh, you know, if he was feeding people or he was healing people or he was speaking any of those things, instead of just accepting what's on the surface, you know, Jesus fed a hungry belly. That's good. That's what we should do. Jesus healed uh, somebody's illness. That's what we should be about. Jesus, uh, you know, did these kinds of things. Everything he did was to promote the stark, excuse me, the stark contrast of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. Or even what the scriptures would even say is the kingdom of darkness once it's in the hands of man. Anything apart from God belongs to the enemy. So Jesus did everything to create this contrast so that you and I and those of the day that were even watching these things, we could make up our minds and say, okay, this clearly isn't from the kingdom or the realm of what I'm used to. Or the things that everyone's been telling me and everything. This Jesus, as he shows up and does his thing, is so different from anything else we've experienced or witnessed. So this is what Jesus' M.O. was, was to create contrast. Of course he's doing the works that his father sent him to do, he's doing the right things and they all have deeper meanings and symbolisms, but he is he is looking to present this contrast for us. He knows how we're wired. So we're going to be spending some time in a small small passage of scripture in John chapter 10, but... Before we do that, we have to set up by kind of narrating through John chapter 9. I'm going to do my best to tell you what was happening in John chapter 9, and then that will get us to the point of what Jesus uses to create this contrast with the people around him. So in John chapter 9, we have a man who was born blind, who uh, has been outside the synagogue asking for help, asking for assistance, what we would call begging. He's doing that the whole time. And, And those that probably you know, know the most scriptures and they know the most about um, religion and everything, they would pass by him every single day. And, and, and it didn't seem as though they were doing anything to meet his needs. And so they're just kind of happy to move on and move, move by him. Well, when Jesus is coming by with his disciples, this has been something, you, you know the feeling, something's been bugging you for a long time and you're finally near somebody that can answer the question. You're like, oh, it doesn't even matter what's going on. You just say, oh, I have a question for you. I need you to answer this for me, and this is kind of what the disciples were doing. They said, All right, you, you got to help us out with this. We've been seeing this guy forever. The community's been seeing this guy forever. We see guys like this all over the place. Whose fault is it that he's blind? Was he blind because he sinned? Or perhaps was it something generationally? Did his parents sin and it kind of caused him to have to suffer this way and stuff? Jesus' response isn't really a a response on all ailments, physical ailments. He says, this man, he gets zeroed in on this man. He goes, this man was born blind so that the works of God could be demonstrated through him. So he's not making a a blanket statement on, on all illnesses and stuff, so we can't look too far into the passage that way. But he's saying, this man was born blind He's been suffering for decades. He's been begging all this time. He's been the scourge of the community. He's been going through all this because one day we would be walking by him. Now you can say whether that's fair or unfair in our own limited understanding, but but Jesus said this is uh, here before us so that I can demonstrate who my Father is right before your very eyes. And so he proceeds to heal this man. Now he takes. I um he he spits in the ground. I'm sorry to be so graphic for us this morning. I know we're not able to handle that, but he spits in the ground and we take he takes his finger or his two fingers, he starts mixing up the the mud and everything and he gets it all it's kind of nasty you think about it. It's kind of a gross. You ever here's something you should you should ask yourself. This kind of occurred to me this week. It's you know, Jesus is also recorded to have healed and raised the dead from from towns away from great distances. Jesus didn't need to spit in the ground and do some magic concoction of something in the dirt in order to... Why would Jesus do this physical demonstration? Why would he go through the process of... He's, he's mixing this up, and he puts the mud on the guy's eyelids, and he says, I want you to go back into a pool in the center of town, and that pool, his name was Siloam. It, it, it was Hebrew for scent, which I think is fairly ironic that jesus was sending him to receive the healing and wanting him to be seen by the community that was in the center of town so he could have done it all right there but instead he takes the guy he says i'm going to start the process going to dab this on your eyes you go back for a walk i want you to get to that pool and wash your eyes and report to us what happens so you think about it this man is stumbling his way back as he's used to doing the community's used to seeing him stumble his way through. Nothing's really odd here. Maybe they see a little bit of the mud on his eyes or something. But he starts washing his eyes. And now all of a sudden, we know the rest of the story. He's healed. He can see. So he does what any of us would do. He starts basically shouting it from the rooftops, goes to his family, those that are closest to him, that will celebrate the loudest with him because they've watched him go through this ailment. They've seen him held back by this, by this problem. And so he goes to his parents and, of course, they're all rejoicing. And what do the, the ones in the community that know God the most in their own description, self-description, what are the ones that go to church the most? There's a synagogue, but to, in our vernacular, you know, the ones that are in church all the time, that are one, ones around the, the religious holy ones all the time, what do they do? They go, I'm so glad for you. I know you've been suffering all this time in our mere pittance that we've been giving you. We know it isn't enough. Now you can go out and get a job. They don't do any of that. They go hunt him down because they heard that Jesus, the Nazarene, the rebel, had something to do with this. And they're not real excited about that because it uh, is an affront to their authority and their power in the community. And they're hearing this rebel is getting a following. So they go to this man's house and instead of saying, show us the results, this is great, they start grilling him and interrogating him. Who did this to you? What was the manner he did it to you? You let this sinner touch you? The reason why they were calling Jesus a sinner in that instance is because he dared spit in the ground and mix up a little mud on the Sabbath. If you know the Sabbath, the Sabbath is just the appointed day of rest that God instituted from creation. For a lot of different reasons, but mostly so that you and I could have a break so that you could you and I could have a day off kind of guilt free to be able to say I need to recreate my mind and my reconstitute myself and refresh myself and then go back into laboring as hard as I can. And so the leaders, the Pharisees took that as to say, well, God commanded it so we can't we can't do anything. We're not supposed to work at all. And so if anything was done, now can you imagine how many calories do you think Jesus burned spitting in the ground and doing this? You know, how much work went into that? But isn't this, isn't this human nature that we grasp for straws when we're trying to make a case? And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They said, well, he's not, not just guilty of making us mad, but he did this, he did this, and then we stack this case. So there's no way this person could have ever done anything right. It's exactly what they did. They grill this man. They grill his parents. And they're like, what are you asking us for? He's an adult. He can speak for himself. He was blind. He's not deaf. Go talk to him. And so they go, and they, they they still don't like his answers, and they say, "You let this sinner do this to you." <laughs> Imagine that. It's just that's what they're focused on. You know, you should have waited till Monday for him to do this to you. You know, what's your problem? Instead, they said, "He his response is this extremely mature. You can tell he wasn't just some, you know, waste of space, as I'm sure the community thought of him." He said, "Whether this man's a sinner or not, that's not for me to judge. I don't know. I don't know him well enough yet." All I know is that hours ago I was blind, and now I see. And we just sang that, didn't we? And that becomes the testimony of those that have been rescued from the great healer. As we look, look, you can make your own judgments about Jesus. And, and that is ultimately what's needed for us to come to him, is you have to deal with who is Jesus, and will you surrender to who he is? And so that's what they—that's what this man did. And he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I was just blind before. And now I see. You can argue with the results if you want, but I'm not wasting any more time arguing with you about this. He says, all I can tell you, and this is really what he says, if you want to read chapter 9 at some point, he says, all I can tell you is that in the history of mankind, nobody's done for anybody what this man just did for me. And again, the, the religious elite has an opportunity to respond in graciousness and say, you know, you've got an excellent point. We're sorry to came in a little hot. We're just happy for you. What do they do? They go, <laughs> you, a loser completely born in your sins. They said It says entirely in your sins. You think you can teach us now? His whole life is a, is a lesson right before their eyes. And they fall back on their authority. They fall back on their intellect. They fall back on what makes them hot shots. They say, you... A loser? You think you can tell us the more perfect way? Jesus hears that, they, that this man's been removed from them, which was probably a favor for him at this point. Um, he's been removed from them. Jesus goes and finds the man that he heals, and he's just, he goes with him to do business with this man's soul. Not, hey, give me your notes. What did the Pharisees say? I wonder if we can figure out how to de- defeat these guys or anything. He just goes and says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Which is another phrase for who Jesus is. And he says, basically, I don't know, where is he? He says, the one speaking to you is, is he. He says, then absolutely. Of course I believe in you. Jesus then says this. He says, um, for judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see, like yourself, may see. And that those who see, at least in their own mind, like the ones who just kicked him out of the synagogue, May become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind, too, are we? Like, duh. That's what, you know, read between the lines, that's what he's saying. And they're like, Well, clearly he's not calling us blind. I mean, we've been at this for quite a while. Jesus says, If you were blind, you'd have no sin. In other words, if you were like this man, if you were as humble as him, ready to receive healing and grace, I would have wiped your sin out he says, but since you say we see, we're the big shots. We know what's going on even more than this loser. He says, your sin remains. Jesus is saying, I came so that those who are blind and are humble enough to acknowledge their blindness, I'll let them see. Now, that's figuratively speaking. He says, those of you that think you see everything, you can put it all together and you don't need the crutch that is Jesus. or you don't need to have, you know, be so weak to have a faith in God and everything. Stay in your blindness. Jesus says, I came for judgment. I came to reveal these things. I came to present stark contrast. Think about what these people just saw. They just saw the people that intimidate them the most, the people that have their whole religious act together, just get schooled by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords so that that contrast is presented to them. And they go, I think we've been putting our faith in a bunch of weaklings. What's going on here? I mean, this guy, this, this humble guy in raggy clothes, just put them in their place. Jesus was creating stark contrast. In order to continue this uh, lesson, he moves into uh, a couple of metaphors. And um, you know what a metaphor is, a place to keep the cows in. But um, in this particular instance, we're going to be talking about it from the perspective of Sheep. Little popcorn laughter going on there. It wasn't that funny. Don't all feel the obligation to laugh and encourage me up here. Thanks. Now, uh, so so Jesus is going to continue this analogy, and he's going to even press tighten the screw deeper to present the stark contrast between what they have been seeing all along in their society and what he presents. To help us with this metaphor, I just want us to watch this quick video, and then we're going to go right into John chapter 10 that is the foundation for the elements of this video. Let's go ahead and watch that. Jesus is going to use this word picture here of the shepherd because the people of that society can relate to it. They relate to it a lot better than probably most of us can. Uh, Because we don't have those same roles. But he goes on to explain uh, in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This was very interesting to me. Now, this passage here. Um, is is really also giving some background that we can see a little clearer in hindsight than maybe even the listeners were able to put together then. But he's even giving the Israelites, the Jewish people, a heads up saying, this salvation is not going to be just um, relegated to you. This will eventually move out uh, to all the lands and cover the whole world. And so you will have to acknowledge that God himself has come to save even the Gentile or the non-Jew. And so some of this imagery is going on even in this passage. But, it, but very specifically, we see that what Jesus is presenting here is such stark contrast to what they just saw from their religious leaders because Jesus is choosing a symbol of strength mixed with compassion. And I think the blind man begging on the, on the stairs of the synagogue indicated that what was lacking from all of the religious exercise, all of the knowledge of the ancient scriptures, was not resulting in something that was actually actively going after people with love. So this element of compassion was missing. But you can't watch that video and, and, and detach strength and compassion when you're looking at the shepherd. You saw that the images of, of caring for that little baby lamb and it says that he was looking after the wounds and then one who calls a voice that they recognize and all of those things. So Jesus is using this image of a shepherd to again present stark contrast. This is what you're used to, but this is what God has always intended to demonstrate and he's going to do it through me. He's going to use those that have been born this way so that the works of God can be made manifest through them. Now. When I was going to Bible college, I was told that if you can do your outlines in tricky little catchy phrases, people will remember them. I don't know that that's entirely true, it hasn't been really my experience, it hasn't even helped me remember my own sermons, but to prove that I paid attention in some of those classes, I came up with a little thing as we're talking about the shepherd. The shepherd has very distinct roles, very, uh, many roles, and, and, and many of which I'm not going to spell out, but there's just a few that I wanted to highlight. The first is that the shepherd is a protector. He is to protect the flock. We saw this in the video. We heard this from the scriptures. He lays across the doorway so that anyone trying to get in will trip him off like an alarm. And anyone trying to get out to escape the protection of the fold, he'll also be alerted. So he becomes the door. He becomes the barricade to protect them. I know you're on the edge of your seat going, where is this going to go, right? Protects. And then he also directs, see, it's getting pretty clever. Well, you guys are asleep, Ben, you were right. Okay, there we go. A couple of overreactions in there to please me, I appreciate that. He directs, he leads them to greener pastures. In the morning, they need their drink of water. He knows right that, he, he's inspected the, uh, the, the area, he's, he's glanced over it to make sure it's safe. He's going to lead the sheep to the area they need to go. So he protects, he directs, and as we saw with the wounds and the oil and everything, he's inspecting as well to make sure that he helps the, the sheep bring about healing and recovery. So did you catch what I did? All right. He protects, he directs, and he inspects. Quiz next week. And if none of you remember it, I'll call my professors back and say, you failed me. So, Now that is what pastor bill would do to compare his education which is seminary level and mine which is bible college level he'd remind me that his money was money well spent so there we go the shepherd also which is fascinating to me as you see this um the shepherd's voice is so distinct and recognizable to the sheep that they would allow other flocks to come together overnight And to all kind of corral in the same pen and the shepherds would be like, okay, do you want to switch watch or something? Who's laying in the doorway now? Who gets to rest? And all that sort of stuff. Maybe it was a matter of convenience. They'd look out for one another. And in my mind, because I know nothing about sheep and livestock and those sorts of things, I would think, how do you separate them? How do you know which ones belong to you? Because you can't color code them. You don't have name tags on them and stuff. But the scriptures are telling us what goes on. And those of you that are familiar with sheep would be able to back this up is that they recognize the voice of their shepherd. Jesus even said the voice they don't recognize, they'll move away from. It's not that they'll be oblivious to it, but they're uncomfortable with the voice they don't recognize. So in the morning, the shepherds would get up, and they'd kind of spread themselves out, and then they'd start using their voices. And the sheep, that were all just kind of mingled. They'd be like, all right, Hal, good to see you. Okay, Sally, good to take to you later. And they'd kind of just break up, and then each shepherd would have their same count. Same thing in the morning if they did their job and provided the protection that they were supposed to. And so I know the analogy becomes very obvious to us here why Jesus would use this. The more we get acquainted with what a shepherd is. And those of you that have experienced life in the flock, you've been in the fold, you've seen and you've recognized these attributes with your shepherd. But I personally do not find the analogy of the sheep all that personal you know satisfying or that complimentary it's cool to be thought of as a shepherd i mean that sets up our messiah just like that's powerful that's gracious compassionate strength it's all those things but sheep it's not real encouraging you know we get to be compared to the ones that are kind of dumb and defenseless and you know you'd have to hoof something to death in order to protect yourself you know even something with teeth there's no there's no way to really defend yourself you're completely relying on the on the strength of the shepherd. I mean, why couldn't it be, you know, we're lions or we're bears or sharks? I like sharks. I saw some shark uh, shark movie a couple weeks ago. <laughs> I'll freak you out. You can't go swimming for like, you know, a couple of years afterwards. But you see that and you're like, oh, I'd love to be one. of They're like so scary and powerful. And I'd even take a dolphin because we're all kind of amazed at dolphins. They're like, wow, they're so smart and they're graceful and they're beautiful and all this kind of stuff. But no, we get sheep. Meh, you know, just boring. We produce wool, some chops, you know. That's what we're good for. So when we look at it from, with, from our human perspective, sheep sounds really derogatory. And, and if we're being honest, it kind of is. But from the shepherd's perspective, the shepherd is there because he loves sheep. The shepherd is there because he values sheep. That's his livelihood. He's protecting it. See, through the shepherd's eyes, he starts to see defenseless as dependent. He's okay with defenseless because that means he's needed. He wants to be there for the sheep. If the sheep acted all high and mighty and no one needs to protect me, then the shepherd's job starts to get diminished. He can't be who he was created to be or he can't be who he was supposed to be. And so Jesus acknowledging that or or teaching us that he is the shepherd means if you would just be the, the dependent, defenseless little lamb that I know you are, if you would just recall that and live like that, you'd find so much protection and grace and comfort in me. So he likes to see that helpless side of us. He likes, to, he likes to see that the sheep are trusting. You know, you hear that voice and you just go to it. You know, you could be in the middle of your little sheep conversation, bleeding out your heart's desires, and all of a sudden the voice of the shepherd calls you, and you're like, I've hey, got to go, and then you move on. I mean, for us, it doesn't really feel like a lot of control. It feels kind of like robotic or something like that, but that's the way the sheep is wired. That's what they look for. It's what they long for. Jesus sees it through the eyes of a shepherd and says, Stop belittling that. Even though everyone outside the fold, they look in and they go, oh, that's so sad. I pity you. You guys are a bunch of everyone in this room. You're all those people that needed a crutch. You needed God to rescue from your mental weakness because you are mentally weak or you're you're too you're too weak to cope in life. You needed this invisible figure to invent in order to you see that's the the outward pity that comes as people are looking into the fold. Here's what I'm absolutely convinced of. 100% 100% convinced of, because I've seen it borne out way too many times, and I've heard from others that have seen a lot more life than me say the same thing, that all the naysayers on the outside that are looking at the life of the sheepfold and thinking it's robotic, it's, it's um, um, isolated, it's, it's too dependent thinking, it's not independent enough, all that kind of stuff, what they aren't willing to acknowledge out loud in so many cases is that they too see the lifestyle of what goes on in the flock and go, I kind of need some of that myself. When they see what real protection looks like from the shepherd, when they see what real care demonstrated to say, you, know, you mean every day you know that your meal is going to be provided from your shepherd? You mean every time you hear a growl in the bushes or you see footprints walking through and stuff and you know it's a wolf or something, you, you mean you've got someone that looks after you in times like that? There's an inner longing that we've all been created with that I believe the Lord put there right from the beginning of creation that we want to be loved. I know that sounds cliche, but think about it. We want to be loved. We want to be protected. We want to be provided for. We want to be longed for or yearned for. And these are all the things that we get from Jesus in the analogy of the shepherd is that he offers all of those things. And so often what we hear in the noise in, outside the, the sheepfold is a belittling kind of, we've settled for this life. But really what we, what we get when we get involved in it, when we surrender to the voice of the shepherd and we follow his lead, what we get from that is protection and provision and all the things that our soul has been hungry for, even the things we didn't even know we were missing. Life inside the fold, inside the sheep pen. They would put these big rocks and boulders around and everything and leave just the entrance for the door that the shepherd would lay across at night. It was difficult for the enemies to to get in. It was impossible for the sheep to climb out and everything. And so when Jesus is talking about these enemies and stuff that would come in, looking from the outside in, the life of the sheepfold is very weird. Now, it's okay for us to admit this. You know, those of us that are inside the sheepfold, we we know the voice of the shepherd. We've been welcomed into the community of the other, you know, sheep and everything. We know how we do things and stuff. If we take a step back, it's pretty weird. You know, in a good way, it's peculiar. And peculiar is probably a safer word or better word than weird. But, But we are peculiar sheep. You think about it, when he says in the scripture, he says that we recognize the voice of the shepherd, which means that we're hearing a voice no one else is hearing a little weird let's be honest we hear voices now all kinds of churches will explain this in all sorts of ways but I just want you to to hear what I'm saying below the surface which is the Lord Jesus Christ still speaks to his sheep as the shepherd his voice is still heard it's primarily heard through the voices uh, through the pages of this scripture which is another weird thing we do we listen to an ancient text we, we rely daily Uh, hopefully daily, on words that are thousands of years old. Instead of looking at at this as some kind of like antiquated set of rules or something, we come back to this and find life in the scriptures. So the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us predominantly through his word. He speaks to us through the activity of his people, sometimes through um, just a, a message that somebody has for us and stuff. There's all those kinds of things, but God speaks in truth that can be backed up and solidified in his word. We hear this voice. It's like a calling over the hill. Sometimes it sounds far away or sometimes it sounds right like we can feel his breath on our neck. And the Lord speaks to us that way. We hear voices makes us a little weird, but it makes us peculiar. And it also starts to create some of that longing from outside going, well, wait a second. Where do you guys get your guidance from? How is it that you look at your marriage under the, under the, the, the definitions that have been, um, if you will, invented thousands of years ago? How is it that you've determined how you're going to use your finances um, based on words in, in, a, in an Old Testament book that's got dust in it? How is it that you've decided that you're going to raise your kids off of these things that haven't changed? Don't you know that we've been writing a lot of books since the 70s on how to do this? You don't have to just keep going back to this, you know, and that's all the things that we hear. From outside the fold until you find life in them until you start to trust them it looks weird to the outsiders we talk this is another weird thing we do we talk to somebody who isn't in the room it's okay to be freaked out if you really think about this like we you know we just did it earlier we close our eyes we look at the floor we look at the lights we do whatever people pray in all sorts of different ways and stuff when they're praying to the lord but we talk to somebody that nobody else can see we really can't physically see him either but we know he's there because we trust in the ancient text. We know that where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. We know that he he uses the gift of prayer as communication between his sheep and the shepherd. So we know this and we trust in this and we live by this. And this makes the sheepfold weird. It makes it peculiar. The sheep provide for their own. They look after one another in the flock. They aren't They aren't taking some of the stones from the protective barrier and saying, "Okay, I'm glad we're all in the fold together. This is all great, but I'm not feeling quite safe enough. So I'm going to steal a few stones off the top and I'm going to make my own little corner inside the pen because I still don't feel protected enough. You know, what we do is we live ideally in this kind of community environment where we pay attention to the needs of other people. It's what the scriptures would call good stewardship with the finances and the resources and the time and the talents that the Lord has blessed us with that we're willing to be spent. We're willing to give up these things so that the rest of the flock is cared for and looked after. That can be seen as pretty weird. And then I think lastly, uh, we also allow some strange nosiness in our life. Isn't it weird that we're so and probably rightfully so, but I mean, we're, we're really freaked out about being spied on, right? Especially if, I don't know if you've seen that in the headlines over the last couple of years, but we're probably all being spied on. So take your little game system cameras and turn them around, okay? Because it's just weird stuff going on there. But we want our privacy, right? We want everyone to stay out of our business, yet we feel the need to be involved in everyone else's business. <laughs> your privacy isn't my concern. My privacy is my concern. We have in our humanness, in our fallen state... We have a resistance to anybody being invasive in our lives. And yet the life of the sheepfold allows some of that nosiness because it allows uh, someone to come into our life and say, um, Hal the sheep, I noticed that you were looking over the wall and you were checking out that stream. I know you came from there. I know before you came to the fold you were down there and you saw that. You know, I know you're missing that. I know you feel drawn to that and everything. Can I just remind you what you escaped from when the shepherd found you? that you had the wolf's uh, uh, teeth basically at your heels and he snagged you just in time. I know it's weird with us, right? But you're longing to go back there and I'm just going to be uh, encouraging you not to do that. In fact, if I even see you start to move in there, I might bite your ankles myself to keep you back. I might get a hoof. You might have to hobble around, but I'm going to get you to stay with us because I can't risk you entering into danger. That's, that's invasive. That's uncomfortable. That's part of the code, if you will, in the sheepfold. We look after one another. And some of us are so weird, if you're so inclined, to go find another sheep to say, I'm feeling drawn to that thing over there, or I'm being lured away, or I'm being pulled away, and I don't trust myself to resist it. Would you please bite me by the ankles if you see me moving in that direction? It's just this weird thing we call accountability. And there's this accountability in the community of sheep that we accept and that we might even pursue. And that looks weird to the outsiders. But yet it starts to start uh, create this stark contrast. I don't have any of this outside the fold. And they start to long for that. Let me just finish out our passage here in John chapter 10 um, so that we can talk about another metaphor. Jesus shifts slightly from... It's not that he shifts from it. He includes two metaphors in the same passage. We're going we're gonna to look a little closer at the second one. Um, In verse six, he says, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were, which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Okay, there's our second word there. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I love that Jesus shifts to this really multifaceted symbol word, this door thing. And it's a little bit confusing in the same passage to think, okay, he's the shepherd, but he's also the same. He's the door to the sheepfold and everything. But Jesus can do this because he's comprehensive. He's not limited to just one way of looking at things. So Jesus uses this multifaceted symbol, and he's, and he's basically giving us the indication here, the homeowner, in our term, because we own homes and we have doors and stuff, hopefully, if you haven't looked into them, they're great inventions. They, they uh, limit you from having to climb in windows and such. The homeowner has the right to welcome or restrict who they want. You think about how you use your door at home. Um, some of you have this custom this is a rabbit trail I didn't plan to say this some of you have this custom of just walking into people's homes you freak me out it's weird just throwing that out there just a little knock goes a long way gives you enough time to hear the sound. no I'm just kidding <laughs> but it's risky in this area isn't it I'm just going to walk into someone's house anyway you enter at your own risk um, a door serves as our opportunity to make that decision. Do we let you in or we keep you out? And it also works as sort of this opportunity to show hospitality. You know, you picture you swing that door wide open and say, come on in, be a part of what's going on here. That's what a door does. A door, a door serves as a barrier of defense. It serves as a gateway, if you will, to welcome it's also the most logical entry point to the house. That's what I was saying about you should really look into a door if you haven't used one yet. I mean, we we put stairs that lead up to a door. We make it nice and convenient. Put it on a level that people aren't totally out of out of wind to climb into. Hopefully, we uh, put a welcome mat. You can wipe your feet off in a place to hang your keys. It makes sense to enter through the front door. And so I want you to kind of apply that analogy in a little way that entering in through the door, who is Jesus Christ, also makes sense we have a tendency to think that if we're going to surrender our intellect to who god is it is somehow checking our brains at the door that is not what we're asked to do jesus the entry that is jesus as the door still makes the most logical sense if we surrender to it jesus is saying by saying i am the door he's saying i have the authority to restrict entry i have the i have the strength to defend the homestead But I also have the grace to allow in anyone that I choose that I want to. That's the authority that Jesus has by being the door. He's not just protecting us. He's also extending his grace so that we can come to him. Access to the sheepfold, and this is where we're going to wrap this up. Access to the sheepfold requires us to surrender all of us. And and the scriptures and theologians have helped us to understand that all of us means how we use our brains, which is what will be our intellect, how we experience things, our emotions, and also how we surrender to things, which is our will. Those three things, our intellect, our emotions, our will need to be surrendered before the shepherd in order for him to say, now come on into the fold and experience all the blessings and uh, the community that comes with it. So he challenges us to surrender the entire person. doesn't mean we get it perfectly. It doesn't mean we know everything there is to know about God. But what what we've done is said, I'll at least submit to his authority. I'll submit to his protection. I'll submit to his grace if he were to allow me into the fold. For those of you that are still hung up on the intellectual side of I can't make sense of God, let me just throw out the best I can come up with for a question on that if you are even remotely open to the existence of god do you want him to be someone that you can really figure out what you expect god to be is that someone that you want to be able to connect all the dots with because if you can connect all the dots with the person that you know you're supposed to give your life to isn't that freak you out a little bit like he doesn't know any more than you do you figured him out so therefore you can receive him, so therefore you can worship him as God. That isn't the way that that works. At some point, and God is very gracious, he'll help us connect dots. I was talking to somebody that was here in the first service that said, I think that's where I'm at. I'm seeing all the dots and I'm wrestling with I'm just waiting to see the lines connect to all of them, but I'm trying to step out in faith with what you just said. I'm trying to just say, okay, if I can't figure them all out, maybe I just step in and he'll give me his answers over time. I didn't have to say anything. I was like, "Uh, great, do that. (laughs) Sounds perfect to me. We hold ourselves back and we say, well, I I just can't make sense of it all. Well, I drive a car every single day that I can't make sense of. And you don't see me going, I will not get in an automobile because I don't understand how an automatic transmission really works. You see, we eventually, we surrender to, I don't get it, but it said it would get me there. That's the intellectual part. Emotionally, there are those that need to feel something or, or, or be led by feelings in order to say I'm all in. And there are others who have said, I don't want to feel anything about this process because I want to be able to rationalize it in my brain. And if emotions get in and make it tricky, as though emotions can be controlled. And so that becomes another point of surrender. It's just the way we're made up. Sometimes we'll feel something, sometimes we won't. Sometimes we'll have the, the clarity to think through things, and sometimes crisis hits and our brains just go right out the door, and we're just reacting out of emotion. How do we know how to control that? That's something we surrender to the shepherd and we say, Look, I'm, I'm either a mess because I feel everything, and I just drop a hat, or at sun, sunrise I just start crying, or somebody's like, I don't feel anything. And I, it freaks me out that you're trying to move in me emotionally and I really want to figure you out. Both ends of that spectrum surrender that to the Lord and we come before Him. Lastly, our will, which I think is so closely tied to the intellectual argument. If you think about how many people have created philosophies or scientific arguments to get rid of God, who later on admit the reason why I went through all that rigor to explain God away is because I wanted to do this and I knew that my church was against it. I wanted to be this person, and if God was real, he wouldn't allow me to be this person. So I developed a system that made sense to me that could explain away God. What they're saying is my will, my lack of wanting to surrender, influenced my intellect to create something that kind of made sense to me on paper. So that's why I say those two are so closely related. For most of us that say, I just can't get my mind around it, we have to start looking inwardly and say, maybe it's more a problem of surrender. Maybe it isn't just an intellectual barrier that I have. Not surrendering to an authority higher than us is the strongest force a person fights in their lifetime. More than looking up to someone or fearing powerful people, the willingness to release control is the greatest cause in resisting the call of the loving shepherd. So let me just ask you two different questions and we'll wrap up. Are you inside or outside the fold? If you are outside the fold today, have anything that we've said this morning resonated with you where maybe outwardly you've looked at that and said, boy, it looks like a crutch or it looks kind of like weakness to me, but there's something that's just drawing you inside. It's almost like you can faintly hear the shepherd's call and you're not sure if you like where it's leading you, but it's also something you can't quite resist. What point of those three things of your whole being need to surrender to him? You know, Are you struggling in your mind? Are you allowing emotional blocks, or maybe you're just not willing to surrender to anybody who has the answers more than you do. Maybe you've been craving the guidance and the protection that only the shepherd can offer. Are you inside the fold? Are you one of the sheep that hears the shepherd's voice, but maybe it's grown faint? Maybe it's become a little distant. Maybe you've caught yourself sticking your hooves up on the stone wall, looking around going, oh, I remember that, brook. How come they don't take us back there? And boy, I remember back in the good old days when I could just gallop through the fields and everything, kind of forgetting what we were saved from. And maybe you're recognizing, boy, if the voice of the shepherd was just a little stronger in my ear, if I could feel his breath on my neck and I knew he was right there with me, if, if I if I just open myself up to that greater accountability within the or maybe I need to just speak to him more and, and establish that relationship or rekindle that relationship. Maybe that's where you are today. So I ask you, what's holding you back from doing that? Hopefully you've been reminded this morning of the benefits that come with that, but mostly not just because of what we get out of it, but because of who we get, that the shepherd really does love us and he is kind and compassionate. He is the mixture of, of authority and strength, but mingled with compassion. Would you please stand? I'm going to ask Don to come forward. Don's one of our elders here, and I just wanted to mention that if any of you are struggling with any of the points that we said and. You're, you're striving to hear a voice and uh, uh, want to speak and meet to the shepherd. That's what our elders are here for, other than also just giving us good biblical um, guardrails to stay on. That's what I'm around for. Pastor Ben, any of us are around for to help out with that. So, Don, I'm actually going to give you this microphone over here. I just grew a lot taller. Probably the weight of the oh, massive Bibles that we've brought up front with us. There. With it's a one Bible podium, I guess. Yes, I guess sir. So. Thank you. Yes, sir. All right. Well, I thought quite a lot about how we close a service in prayer. And I appreciated all the allusions to sheep and shepherds and such. I've been growing up on a farm myself. Uh, we actually had the animals living in the house where I grew up, including a sheep. Name Sapphire. But I don't think there's any better way to do it than to read from Hebrews. So follow along as a prayer. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.